Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What is virtue? How do you acquire it? How do you live a flourishing, examined life? These are the questions your high school students could be asking at Princeton University this summer at the Witherspoon Institute's seminar on the moral life and the classical tradition. Accomplished university faculty engage students on discussions of the big questions, drawing on thinkers like C.S. Lewis and Peter Kraft, and using a Christian framework to stress the importance of the family and human dignity. Students seeking admission to the seminar should be earnest in their desire to further their education as well as their moral formation. Former students of this program have gone on to graduate from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and many other colleges and have formed strong friendships over the course of the week-long course. The Seminar for Men runs from June 17th to June 23rd, and the Seminar for Women runs June 24th to June 30th. See the Witherspoon Institute's website for application details at winst.org. That's winst.org. Welcome to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education. I'm David Kern, and on this episode, I'm really excited about this because this guest is one of my favorite Cersei people. My favorite Cersei orbit people, I guess, is the better way of putting it. He's been around for a long time. Since I was a little kid and attending conferences with my family, John Hodges has been a part of the Cersei world. He's been speaking at Cersei conferences and writing for us and just generally being a good friend of Cersei for for so long now that I, I don't even know if I can keep track of it. He's the director of the Center for Western Studies, a sort of gap year program for kids who are out of high school, but looking for something to kind of prepare them for the rest of their life and in particular for college. The Center for Western Studies is what they call an experiment in education, and their goal is to offer students two things, a Christian view of the world and a study of the ideas that shaped Western civilization. So they get together um, in Memphis, Tennessee, where Mr. Hodges lives, along with six other faculty members, and they discuss great books, great ideas, great art, great music, and best of all, perhaps, well, maybe not best of all, but one of the great things is they get to travel to Europe every spring. So they'll go to, go to Oxford, go to Paris, uh, and get to actually see where so much of the great art of the Western world was created. If you want to learn more about the center, you can go to centerws.com. And at the end of this episode, Mr. Hodges talks a lo- little bit more about the program. So I highly recommend you uh, stick around for that at the end. But in this conversation, we talked, uh, Mr. Hodges and I talked about music, which is his primary uh, realm of expertise. We talked about people like me, the musically limited, as it were, and how to teach and how for people who don't know a lot about music and who aren't gifted in music, teaching music to our kids and our students can be scary. So I asked him what he recommends for that. And that's kind of where we began. But we also talked about the role of composer study. We talked about pop music a little bit. We talked about um, helping students learn to love music. We talked about why the word classical in reference to classical music is not the best word. And We talked about uh, pieces of music that Mr. Hodges recently uh, rediscovered that he's been really surprised by and that he's been enjoying. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. If you don't feel up to the task of teaching music or if you love music and are a concert pianist, whatever it is, I think this conversation will be of great interest to you. Mr. Hodges is so insightful when it comes to music and you can tell that he really loves it and that, that love just comes through and is inspiring and instructive at once. So without further ado, I will kick it over to my interview with Mr. John Hodges of the Center for Western Studies. And I began by asking him the first question that I brought up there for the musically limited. Um, I don't want to say the musically uninclined, but the musically limited, uh, so to speak. Teaching music um, can can be scary, frightening, um, can be kind of a waste, not a wasteland, but a wilderness. Um, I can, can feel that way. So how do you recommend someone approach teaching their children that way? And let's just assume 
um, for the sake of conversation right now, that it's that it's say a homeschooling parent who knows that they want their children to be musically educated, to to be able to play an instrument or read music or or know what they're listening to at the very least when they listen to a to a classic piece. Yeah. But but you sure. know, maybe that person like me had a very limited skill set and so kind of steered away from music. Um so what would you you could just talk to me. What would you tell me to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well David uh, <laughs> um yeah well this is a very interesting uh, question because and I it's one that I've actually addressed uh, all basically all my life, trying to figure out how it is to re-engage the general public with uh, their own sort of musical heritage. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a multifaceted problem. There's first first off, I think people love things when they see the value in them, and mm-hmm. so they or they maybe I should say they pursue things when they love them. Hmm. Maybe that's the better thing. Hmm. But, you know, you you. If we don't pursue something, it, it's probably be because we don't have an affection for it specifically. And if you don't have an affection for the thing, uh, it's probably be because it's probably because you haven't actually gotten to know it very well. Hmm. Well, in the case of sort of classical, what we call classical music, which by by the way is a terrible word for it, because well, let me hang on to that a second. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll write a note down to ask you about that. <laughs> About I asked me about class the word classical, the, but um, <clears throat> what I'm thinking is people generally don't see the value in the music. So why go to all the trouble of sort of exposing yourself to or wasting time with uh, you know an obscure Bach toccata hmm. or you know Mozart symphony or something when hmm there's all this exciting music that really does speak to me, you know, right here at hand on, on my iTunes account or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, I can, I can be immediately, uh, enjoying the thing, right. I don't want, why should I, why should I work at trying to enjoy something that obviously doesn't, uh, touch me, doesn't, doesn't relate to me. I don't, I'm not relating to it. Mm. And part of it is that we, we just are an immediate, uh, 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 culture. You know, we want things fast. Um, it's not enough to have fast food in your microwave. You want to go to a, you know, a, a drive, a, a fast food restaurant though, to have somebody else cook it for you. And then of course that's not fast enough. We don't want to actually leave our cars. We want to just drive through the, the Starbucks or the, whatever we're going through. Anyway, um, we, we like things to come very quickly and there are things in the, in the world that frankly don't come quickly. Uh, but are worth the effort, uh, and and classical art and music are are one of those things. The second thing is we don't really um, have a connection with our 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 own history very much anymore. We don't we we don't like to think of ourselves back backward toward our grandparents. We want to think of ourselves looking forward to the future. You know, the future is exciting. The next thing that's coming down the road is what's what's important. And uh, so why, why bother with things from way in the past like that? Just, just let them die. That's, that's, that's a personal preference approach to the whole thing. Mm. And I think that's at the source too. That's another facet of this problem. We are living in a day when um, our personal preferences, for the most part, are sacrosanct in people's minds. If you ask me to change my tastes about something... Um, you're actually asking me to change my soul, my person. My, you're, you're, you're in a sense critiquing my my person. Yeah. Um, and and that's not what people who love classical music are trying to do. Um, but but it's a sort of assumption that our um, our our preferences are 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 essential to our being. And so don't ask me to change my preferences. Those, those are the things that I, that I live by. What I want is what, is what makes me me. Hmm. So if somebody says, well, put down that Beyonce record and listen to this obscure Palestrina motet, you'd say, well, you're just asking me to be different. You like that? I like this? Let's just sort of in true libertarian fashion, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> each his own, chacun a son goût, you know, to each his own taste. And... Uh, <laughs> 
leave it like that, right? So there's no questioning about the quality of the thing being talked about. Hmm. So that that that's we're, that's the mountain that we have to climb before we can get to the point where we're actually saying this is what music is. This is what it's been in the in the hands of masters in the past, and and uh, this is how you might engage with it. It's like a language, you see. It's like learning French. Uh, hmm. you, you you're learning a whole new language. You're learning different words for things, for meanings and uh, ideas and objects. And uh, and in music, it's like that too. It's just that when we you know literature is easy in a sense because to study because it's already in the language that we know. It may have words that we don't know, but generally speaking, uh, reading English makes it possible or at least feasible for us to read Shakespeare. Um, but, but, but we don't know the language of music. So mm. it's like when you turn on Bach or something, it's, uh, it's in a language like Swahili or something, and you don't really have any idea why those sounds go with anything. So when you talk about the language of music, two kinds of, I guess, two categories of, of knowledge sort of um, pop into my head. One is, is um, the way that little kids learn to speak English or French or whatever, yeah. where they don't actually know the structure or the constructs or the rules, but they learn that certain sounds mean certain things and they begin to put them together. And, you know, it's kind of, there's something innate about it and they don't, you know, it doesn't have to be like a, um, anything, there's nothing formal about how they're learning it really. Right. Um, and so right. I, that seems like that's sort of like just, um, the language of music being where you're just spending time with the music and the certain, right. and then the sounds become familiar. And then there is the more formal structural uh, elements of language where, you know, you sit, kids sit in their classroom or in a classroom settings, if it's at home or something like that, and they yeah. learn, the more formal aspects of the language. Which of those two things are you primarily speaking of when you talk about that? Well, actually, I guess I'm speaking about both because okay. it's a, it's, you do kind of want to expose yourself to the music as a uh, child might be, listen to words as a, as a, an infant, listen, listen to words right, and right. slowly grow in a kind of intuitive fashion with it. Mm-hmm. But there's a point in that sort of study where you have to learn to read music or you have to learn to understand uh, form, you right. know, or, or uh, recognize the variations in melodies or chord, chord constructions and things like that, the mm-hmm. technical aspect of it all. Right. So, right. right. When you're three years old, you might be delighted by the sounds of music. But when you're seven years old, you might be asked to sit down at the piano and learn that this is middle C and, and so on. So- and you to learn how to read the read what it is that you've been listening to so let's say we have i don't know for the sake of conversation a a teenager who who maybe grew up in a home well let's let's just say i don't know there's so many different ways we could we could so many different angles i could go on this but let's just say we have a teenager who you're trying to teach um or you're 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 trying to help them learn to love what will for the sake of conversation currently call classical music um And you're trying to help them love that, and they they don't yet. And maybe you feel like you were lacking, and you know your your instruction for them when they were younger was lacking. Would you recommend that their studies be primarily more formally based, where you're teaching them the various elements and to speak the the formal language of music, so mm-hmm. that there is that foundation for them to grasp onto as they your hope as they hopefully will learn to love it, or would you kind of treat them well i'll have, I hesitate to put it this way but treat them more like you would an infant learning a language where you're just kind of trying to immerse them in the sounds and and the kind of world of the music right. um, so right. for for the novice who who you want to learn to love music which of those two ways would you pursue it do you think well i that's very it's a very good question if <clears throat> if i were the parent of the child Mm-hmm. then I think I would want to take the approach that most classical education takes and say, let's teach this young child at the point that he's most you know, dry, spongy, um, important 
things that he will be able to that he'll be able to use his tools later on to properly appreciate music. So I would think piano lessons at a young age would be a good idea. When I say young age, I mean about the same time that they learn how to read. So if they learn to read at three or four or five, terrific. If they learn to read at seven, fine. But it's a matter of actually reading. It's looking at the music and reading what it is and making that sound come out of your hands somehow, right. either a recorder or a piano or a voice, singing or whatever. But to right. connect up what the, what the thing looks like on the page with the sound that comes out. <clears throat> uh, but, but I'm not the parent of most of these kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would, that would, that would require a lot of sort of discipline of, of the child because he's not going to want to do it. It's typical right. of right. children at that age. No, mom, I don't want to play the piano. I want to go out and play with my friends, right? Well, you've got to do a half an hour at the piano and then you can go play with your, it's like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in order that you instill in them uh, at a young age the tools, like I said, necessary to be able to make sense of music when they are, when they get older and they can actually engage with it uh, intellectually and, and emotionally and all those things, well, then uh, they have the tools to accomplish it. But I'll tell you what I've done for, in, in the past, I, you know, when I was working as a, a church musician, I knew that the next generation really didn't have much in the way of musical skills going on. And of course, we had a children's choir that that uh, uh, we ran, and we had other other things for the children. But I also did this. I I did what we call a rhythm U concert, which was a sort of patterned after the old Leonard Bernstein young people's concerts. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would pull, pull an orchestra together, a bunch of my buddies from the Memphis Symphony, and bring them over and rehearse with them for an hour and a half, from say five o'clock to six thirty. And then give them a dinner break. And then at 7.30, do a concert for the kids. Hmm. And so it was all in one night. You know, they came over and rehearsed. And we just did, a say, a 45-minute program, something like that. Yeah. And in the program, because I mean, you, you're taking into consideration the, the, the attention span of the young people and so on. But in the program, I would pick pieces of music that could easily be connected up with other aspects of their lives Hmm. so that they had a sort of pathway into the music, you see. And for example, I'll just give you a couple of examples. I did um, uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, Romeo and Juliet fantasy overture. And uh, it's got in it this uh, sword fight theme and it's very exciting and bubbly and and driving and so on and uh i i got two um actors from the local theater who were experts in stage fighting to come on in sort of romeo and juliet costumes and do a sword fight up and down the aisles while we did the music, see. <laughs> so beforehand, I told I them bet that, that went over well. It was us. They were screaming and they loved it. See, <laughs> and what I wanted was for them to see that that's what this is. I wanted them to visualize what the music is doing. There are no words to this music, but it's very clear that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So, and then it has the famous love theme, da 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 da, in it. And when we got to that, I had a guy and a girl in Romeo and Juliet costume. I put one or put the girl up in the balcony and I put the guy down on the floor and he played the, you know, mimed the, the, the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. So, so they get a visual connection to what it is that they're hearing. See? Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of these kind of concerts, I did that. I, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones right off the top of my head. Um, I did a Mozart Rondo one time, a French horn concerto movement. And I, uh, I, I made, I mocked up uh, cards, big, big uh, uh, cards that had the letters A, B, and C on them. And I showed them how a rondo works because it's in the form A, B, A, C, A, B, A. And I, and I showed them what the different pieces of it 
what A sounded like, what B sounded like. We just played them separately and talked about them, you see. And then when we got into the piece of music, I said, okay, now I need volunteers to come up here and pick out the card that we're hearing. You know, are we hearing A now? Are we hearing B? So I got the kids involved and they actually held up the card A while the A thing was playing. And when we moved to the B section, he knew to put that down and somebody else picked up the B card, you know, and, oh, okay. In other words, I'm, I'm hearing the structure of this piece. I'm not just sitting there letting it sort of balance off my ears and comparing it to the latest Jay-Z song in my head. Why, why isn't this more like that, you know? Because um, my musical experience is just this idea of having sound bombarding me and how do I feel when I hear it? You know, that's, mm. that's the extent of it. But what yeah. I wanted them to see was that Mozart was actually saying, this shape of things is, it is beautiful. It's an abstract shape that has a certain symmetry to it and beauty to it. And, and they, uh, they got it. They began to see that the music wasn't just making noises. It was going in a certain progression in certain order. So mm. anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on, but I did, I'll bet I did no, 12. And I, I think what I was, my hope was that once or twice a year, the kids in our church would have an experience with classical music that they would later in life look back on and say, you know, I listened to a piece. We, I, I went to a concert one time. It was a lot of fun. I, I, I have good experiences with classical music, you see. Yeah, yeah. Other than my mom put me in a tie and I had to go and sit, and, you know, in a hard seat and listen to something I didn't understand. And yeah, yeah. To play baseball or something. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying for the young people, I think there are two approaches. I, you can... You can think about what you would do with your own children. And I think in that case, you probably want to shape them some and give them the tools necessary. But on the, on the general level, I think we need to teach the, the young people to, to uh, be able to listen to what, what are the elements of music? What is melody? What is harmony? What is rhythm? What is form? Uh, and when they get those definitions in their heads, they might actually start looking for those things uh, and, the, and the genius uh, of composers is is reflected in those things uh, in the music that they listen to, and what I find is with my students, they eventually start to be kind of bored with a lot of the stuff that is popular hmm. because there isn 't much to it when you when you do yeah. learn to analyze music, you listen to this you know latest pop song, and you think well yeah it 's cute but it's it 's nothing there 's nothing there there's not it 's like candy cotton candy it just disappears when there's you go no there there. Well, kind of. There's a there's a sort of fun rhythm to it, maybe, and then that's that's it. You think, well, that's done, and it was repetitive, and it was uh, it had it didn't have any any um, uh, progression. It didn't actually develop any. He didn't develop any ideas. He didn't connect the melody that he's singing to any of the meaning of the words. You know, so I mean, you start yeah. looking for things like that, and you see it all just sort of become it's it's gaseous it disappears it disappears at what point would you or how early i guess would you start formally naming the structural elements of music so like you could probably a, a child could i mean now i'm no music instructor or whatever but i would think that as is the case with literature or or any, any number of other subjects a child could start learning the elements of a piece of music before they actually are naming what that element is. Sure. So sure. what, I mean, would you, would you early on be naming, you know, the different parts of the different elements of music or, or would you let them kind of discover them and learn what they are before you start naming them? Is there, oh, a, good, I, is there I, a good strategy for that? I think you, you want to attach their hearts to the beauty of it intuitively before you start naming it all I, I i my my instinct as an educator is to is to show them something mm -hmm. and then in a sense use their own natural curiosity to fill in those kinds of gaps so mm -hmm. you think well you show them something and they go that's oh, that's kind of fun that's kind of fascinating and you maybe have to point out one or two things for them or something, but see how it see how it kind of goes up here and down there. Well, that's true. It does, doesn't it? Does it do that again? You know how it is. You when you're teaching somebody about poetry, it's, you do the same thing, or yeah. or uh, painting, or um, lots of things. And but but you but instead of saying here's a list of things that you need to know, and they're completely disconnected from any experience you've ever had, and now I'm going to give you an experience and see if you can connect them up. 
I think I'd do it the other way around, especially because music is so intuitive. Hmm. Uh, so there is there's a, a an attach a heart attachment that you want first. I would think. Hmm. What role? You know, there's a in especially in the in the world of Charlotte Mason um, education. Uh-huh. There's a uh-huh. big emphasis on uh, composer study for young kids. Now, uh-huh. I don't know everything about that. I'm you know I'm not you know, the, the Charlotte Mason expert that say Karen Glass or Cindy Rollins or someone is, but, uh, what role would you say that, that actual composer study, um, I guess, semi-formal composer study should, should play in teaching young kids music. Um, and I guess young kids is kind of a relative term, but, um, and I, and I don't mean to pitch you against, uh, Charlotte Mason. So, you know, step lightly, no, I guess, I if you disagree. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't know. I, I don't, I really don't know a whole lot about Charlotte Mason's approach. And so I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't be critiquing it in any way, no matter what my opinion is. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I would, I would be more interested in engaging with the music itself, maybe than the, than the, the sort of factual information about the composers. That's a secondary thing. If you, if the student is old enough that he's trying to learn something about the history of music, well then, yeah, I guess that, that would make some sense. I, I, the way I've done it is I lay out some, some periods of music, mm-hmm. you know, general mm-hmm. historical periods. And then within each of those periods, I'll say these are the composers that are uh, most sort of well-known in those each, in each of those periods. Mm-hmm. And in that case, then they, they are associating uh you know, Prokofiev with 20th century music, you're associating, you know, Mozart with 18th century music and so on. Um, that would be useful in history. Uh, but I'm not sure how much, how important it is to know birth and death dates of, you know, Shostakovich. Um, if you're, if what you're really trying to do is teach them something about how music works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's useful. It's a secondary thing, it would seem to me. Mm. Um, no, yeah, like like you said, I don't I don't know a ton about Charlotte Mason's um, approach there. So anybody that you know, so it, it, I'm going to be getting messages from people saying I got it wrong. So okay. I'm just going to I'm just going to state for the record, I'm not well, making sorry. it. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm not cr- critiquing it at all. I think it's great to know about composers. So don't get me wrong. I think that's yeah, yeah. wonderful. But if the question is trying to understand music, then I don't see that that's the first thing. Right. Like, right. If you if you think that I mean I, I guess if you really saw your in your students an interest in uh, personalities and biography and like that and yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a gateway into what it is that they did well then yeah that's that might mm-hmm. be a gateway toward it but it seems like the subject itself would be the music and not so much the biography yeah and I would suspect that the even the you know the Charlotte Mason approach probably involves not just reading about them but probably listening to to many pieces by the composers sure, sure. so. Um, I, I'm curious, what are some good pieces of music, of classical music, and we'll continue to call it that until we discuss that, you yeah. know, why, why you don't like that word. Um, <clears throat> some good pieces of music that it seems like children, and especially young children, uh, love, that, that are good gateway um, pieces. You know, for my kids, they love um, uh, the Leonard Bernstein concerts. They love the Carnival of the Animals. Love it, sure. Perfect. So every time we drive somewhere whether it's the grandparents or church or a long trip, they want to listen to the carnival of the animals or really? even the, uh, the, the Peter and the wolf. Um, Peter and the wolf. Yeah. And Another so, section. and they, so there's even particular sections of the carnival of the animals that they are like, each of them has their own sections that they love. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are there other pieces um, similar, similarly that, that seems like you, that, that children love that, that you would recommend? You know, and really talking about talking about children's education and music is almost not in my field. So I probably am not the best guy to talk about that. Um, what I think is great about Peter and the Wolf is, first of all, it's delightful music. It's mm-hmm. just, just spectacularly accessible and delightful music. And it's, it's, uh, it's a great introduction to the various instruments. You know, Peter is played by the strings and, and uh, the the bird is played by the flute and the duck, you know, with the oboe and so on. And the fantastic, fantastic clarinet part uh, mm-hmm. for the cat. Absolute genius. Um, uh, so it's a great way not only for them to 
be engaged, as I was talking about, a sort of extra musical reference point like these animals and the story to engage them with the sounds that they're actually hearing. But also it's a sort of introduction to the various instruments. That's what a flute sounds like. That's what an oboe sounds like. That's what a clarinet sounds like and so on. Uh, the same thing with Carnival of the Animals, uh, only it's more subtle. Um, right. yeah. it's, it's very funny. The yeah. music is very funny. Um, the roar of the lion, you know, and the, um, I've always, you know, the bass solo, it's hysterically funny. It, it's <laughs> it's this great, huge animal trying to do a little ballet step. <laughs> Very, you know, it's delightful and, and yeah. clever and silly and all that. And the and the aquarium music is so watery and you know pre-impressionist almost hmm. uh, kind of music. It's wonderful. So anyway, they get a terrific experience, I think, in those things. And the fact that there's a uh, an external reference point makes it a little easier for them. Eventually, what you want to do, though, is get them to listening to music without that external reference point. Mm -hmm. What I mean is there is what they call pure music, and there's what they call program music. Program music is music that has this external storyline. Um, and it was very big in the 19th century, early 20th century music. Uh, and so a lot of the music that we know that we call classical uh, is uh, has has uh, has a program to it. Uh, Till Oil and Spiegel, or uh, um, the uh, uh, Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, or uh, um, even Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, which was really the beginning of it all. Uh, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony is called the Pastoral Symphony, and has in it built into it all these sort of nature sounds and nature experiences. Sound of water going over. Uh, going down the brook, you know, over the stones in the brook in the second movement, or the the lightning storm, or the the uh, you know the rain, and so on. Mm -hmm. All these various things that Beethoven sort of wrote into his into his music. It's a pure music piece, but it has these extra references that he brought in, and that sort of inspires the 19th century, I think, to start writing uh, more and more program music. But there's all sorts of music that is pure music. That's that uh, you, you find it in uh, the Mozart symphonies, the Haydn symphonies, the classical music, what they call truly classical music, music of the 18th century, uh, or Bach's um, keyboard pieces, or his Brandenburg concertos, orchestral pieces, orchestral suites, various things like that. They have their their internal reference points. That is, the music is its own. Um, entity it's not speaking about something outside of itself it's speaking only in within its own language as it were mm. so uh yeah. eventually what you want i think is for people to be able to listen to pure music and make sense of that mm. and for that it requires more and more uh i guess technical understanding um, yeah there's more subtlety that's right and form form and and very theme and variations uh, understanding understanding how a particular musical idea is introduced and then it's developed. It seems like not even, it's more than just, it seems like you have to learn the language of that particular piece even more, you know, going even well, beyond the language of music in general. Is that, is that true? No, I don't, I don't think it's that particular piece. It's a, it's a understanding of the language of music that makes it possible for you to unlock a particular piece. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Can I give you a quick example? This is going to sound. Yeah, please. I'm, I'm singing these things. It's not really fair to the listeners, but um, <laughs> listen to my awful voice. But there's a there's a no, famous. I saying that would be awful. <laughs> there's a famous um, Paganini uh, etude for violin that goes. It starts. Like that has that figure, and and it's um, and um, uh, Rachmaninoff took that in the 20th century. Rachmaninoff took that little uh, melody that that Paganini wrote some 50 years earlier or something like that, uh, and he he wrote a piece for piano and orchestra that he calls Rhapsody on a theme by Paganini. So he's taken Paganini's little musical idea. And then he, uh, Rachmaninoff, has, has developed it into all sorts of wonderful uh, variations. And you, you 
you follow because you know the tune and it's played at the beginning of the piece so you can remember it but you 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 uh you hear the the tune and it's like a jazz you know how jazz works you play the tune classical jazz you play the tune and then everybody riffs on it everybody improvises yeah. on it right yeah yeah well these are written out improvisations as it were it, it, these are a, a kind of intellectual exercise in in all the the sort of permutations of this this thing in terms of rhythm and harmony and melody and all these things, right? So he goes through a whole bunch of different variations and then comes to a stop and the pianist plays this unbelievable melody that goes da 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 dee da dee da 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 Have you ever heard that before? Be da 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 dee da dee da da dee da you think, where did that come from? That's this beautiful melody. There, uh, uh, Bill Murray uh, learns to play it in Groundhog Day. He's oh, yeah. The old movie Groundhog Day. Well, he, <laughs> he learns to play the piano because he's repeating the day over and over again. Well, eventually he's able to play this fantastic Rachmaninoff. They never played the piano before, but now he can play <laughs> fantastic Rachmaninoff tune, right? Okay, well, then the question is, what's that got to do with this Rhapsody. I mean, this uh, this uh, Paganini theme. Bon, da, 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 da. Well, it's this, it's that tune turned upside down. Hmm. Think da 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 di da 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 dum da 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 di. Turn it around, and you get di da da di da di da da di da. Can you hear it? It's the inverse of the thing. So could, who, who were, it was Rachmaninoff riffing on, what was the, per, the first person? Uh, Paganini. Paganini, okay. Right. Of course, now, if it was happening in 2018, Paganini probably would sue Rachmaninoff. <laughs> for, for stealing his riff. Oh, it was high, well, it's more like, it's more like, um, uh, all these all these guys are are creating rap songs with uh, uh, stealing stealing little bits of previous recordings, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, but it, anyway, it, it's um, if you if you find that if you're listening for that kind of thing, you see, and you hear yeah. that, hmm. and you and you're asking yourself, how did he get from dum da 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 dee to dee da da dee da, and then you see it. There's this like light bulb that goes on that's the size of the sun. It's astonishing. Um, it's just brilliant. It's like he sees the the possibilities in that original Paganini uh, little riff, little tune, uh, and uh, and he stretches them out and shows them to everybody. Hmm. It's genius. It's true genius. Beethoven does that all the time in his in his works, in his symphonies, in his string quartets. He comes up with a little bit of idea of music. Just that little tiny idea of music. And then from that point on, he develops it. Hmm. And it, it becomes dum 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 beep 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 bong beep 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 bong. Can you hear that? It's still the bum 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 rhythm. Mm-hmm. But it's moved to other pitches, so it goes What? It's all built on that same It's all there. And if you listen to that that whole piece, it's just this unraveling, not unraveling. It's almost like weaving together all of the possibilities that that original four-note little motive had. Uh, and it becomes this massive piece of art. It's mm. astonishing, and uh, that's the, that's what I'm talking about. When you when you actually learn to to make sense of a piece of music without the external reference points, you know, you could say, yeah, yeah that that beginning of the Beethoven Fifth Symphony sounds to me like fate knocking at the door. Well, okay, but how about mm. we just think about it as though it were these notes, and these notes follow it, and these notes follow that. Why? Mm. And they and then you and you see why. You begin to see why. It's like somebody telling a story. Yeah. The story just unfolds as it goes. So every time, you know, I talk to you about something like this or I listen to you speak at one of our conferences or some conference or something and, and you kind of 
you get into this stuff and you show how different pieces relate to each other or derive, you know, one piece derives from another, at least a part of it derives from another piece. And the way all these things connect, it's so fascinating and interesting, but in a way it's also overwhelming because oh yeah, there's a, you have a degree of experience or knowledge that comes with experience that, that um, you can unlock these things, but it also, um, you know, that's something that any parent or teacher would love to be able to provide for their children. But there is, you know, I don't have that knowledge. And in a way, as much as I'd like to get there, it's, it's intimidating to even know where to begin in some sense. And I suppose I could just sit down and learn as much as I can about Bach or Beethoven or Mozart. But where would you recommend that, that someone start who, who's maybe, you know, I don't need to get to where you are. <laughs> um, that you know that you that's that's a calling thing i think at least in part sure. but um you know i'd like to know more or you know a lot of people i think would like to know more for you know for, if nothing else for their own sake right their own their own self-edification their own education right. so where right. should someone begin when there's this whole you know there's centuries and centuries and thousands of pieces of music yeah and like as is the case with literature you know, where should people begin? Is there a canon in literature that you should, or then music, as there is in literature that maybe you start with, like maybe you tell someone, start with Homer and Shakespeare and see where it takes you, something right. like that. Right. Is there a right. similar thing or would you recommend learning st- kinds of music or eras of music or something like that? I mean, that's a pretty pretty uh, wordy question, but what, what do you think about that? Well, I guess my first thought is that it would be good to try and get a hold of some of the rudiments of music. To, so this idea of melody or how it's used or harmony or form or rhythm or any of the other elements of music. Just like in visual art, you want to you begin to understand something about the use of color or line or composition right. or, or, the, or the medium that is being used in the art. Um, so you learn those things a little, you learn a little bit about those things. And in order to learn about those things, you have to have some, some, uh, 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 examples you know some pieces of music to actually dig into right right, so one way to to do that i think would be to read aaron copeland's book uh what to listen for in music aaron copeland the famous composer wrote a book back in the i think it's the 50s probably okay uh, called what to listen for in music and it takes it each each chapter is about a different element of music and at the end of the chapter he gives you two or three pieces to listen to uh, he talks about them, you know, in the chapter, and then he'll give you something to listen to, certain mm-hmm. recording to listen okay. to, and then so you. I connect. wrote it down. Yeah, that's a good one. And then I think the Leonard Bernstein Young People's Concerts are really valuable for anybody. They don't have to. It's not Young People's Concerts anymore. It's anybody concerts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they are old. Back in the I guess late fifties, early sixties, he did a whole series of things with the New York Philharmonic. And uh, they were for young people, and it's wonderful because you'll see you'll see the cameras pan the audience, and out there, you know, he's talking about these incredibly complicated things, and and out there in the audience is this like nine year old boy in a in a suit and tie, you know, sitting, and he's just wrapped, he's just mm-hmm. in, in completely <laughs> engaged with this, you know, and you think, how on that earth is how could we ever get our kids to sit still that long, you know? That dark? <laughs> <laughs> in that situation, but yeah. they, but he was able to, he was able to capture their imaginations, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a whole series of them. There might be, I don't know, a dozen or so mm-hmm. uh, that you can still find. I think. And they, were they televised? Yeah, they were televised. Okay. okay. You have to put up with the old technology. Some of them are in black and white, maybe, and, and <laughs> God uh, forbid, heavens. But I mean, you know, you know, the grainy sort of yeah, yeah, sort of television look look, uh, but NBC or. CBS or somebody like that uh, filmed them all with the uh, with the New York Phil, and uh, and he does a great job of laying out things. He just is a very engaging teacher. Yeah, yeah. He was my teacher, by the way. That's one of the reasons I'm so interested in it. I studied with him. Really? And, wow. Yeah, and so I, I've always loved the way he engaged people with the with these elements, uh, hmm. taking it apart, and he would play little snippets of it you know he would say listen to the horns right here would you horns would you just play that bit you do here and they would play it right mm-hmm. and then he'd say, listen for that when we get to that point and sort of give them uh, uh signposts you know along the way in the midst of the 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 the, the flood of of music i'm mixing my metaphors here <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's overwhelming to listen to a piece for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, without any kind of signposts. But if you have something to sort of park, to grab a hold of, you know, as you go, well then, oh yeah, there's that thing, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I would like to do. So I, I think maybe that, that'd be the way to go. And then, sure. It's a great idea to say, well, let's take a particular composer and listen to a lot of things that he did. You know, what did he, what did, what did, um, what did Mozart write? He, he, well, he wrote piano concertos. Well, what's a piano concerto? Well, that leads you into all sorts of information. Um, and what's yeah. the difference between a piano concerto and a string quartet? Apart from the fact that one's played by string instruments and the other played by piano. Is, is the music similar in any way? Well, yes, it turns out it is. Hmm. Um, and what's the difference between a string quartet and a symphony, apart from just the change of instruments? Well, it turns out they're very similar. So if you learn something about one of them, you actually gain information about the others. And you start to see a kind of structure of what Mozart was doing in his life. He certainly wrote, he wrote all sorts of operas. So you, you get a little taste of opera, a little taste of, uh, of uh, chamber music, a little taste of orchestral music, a little taste of uh, uh, choral music. He wrote all sorts of choral music, masses and things. So if you, mm. if you took on one composer like that, you would get a, a wide variety of different kinds of music, all within the same kind of, um, I want to say, color palette, because I want to make, purposely make the transfer to visual art. It, it, like that it's like mm. he he used the same he used the same kind of formal um characteristics in all sorts of different kinds of uh music so uh if you get to know him you get to know a lot of different things and then you can say well let's look at let's look at prokofiev's music for example he'd be a good one to follow because prokofiev is what you call a neoclassical composer He's, he's not a classical composer. He's a 20th century neoclassical composer. At the beginning of the 20th century, some composers like Stravinsky and Eric Satie and, and uh, Prokofiev um, went back to, away from a kind of romanticized uh, 19th century romantic uh, palette and uh, in forms and colors and so on, and went to, um, back to a kind of Haydn-esque, Mozart-esque uh, clarity and perfection and balance and symmetry and understatement and things like that. Hmm. Uh, Peter and the Wolf is a great example of that. Peter and the Wolf is really a very neoclassical uh, piece. Hmm. Very elegant and simple and direct <laughs> and not quite so much hard on the sleeve, pounding passion of Wagner and Mahler and people like that. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going on and on. But I think that no, would be interesting to do it. What I, and why is the reason I say Mozart and Prokofiev is because you would see some of the same characteristics, you see. Once uh, yeah. you talk about Mozart, you'd actually be able to see what Prokofiev was looking back at. Then you could go to, say, somebody like Tchaikovsky or hmm. uh, um, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov or some, other, some big Russian romantic composer like that, hmm. and you could see the differences. You could see yeah. how Mozart's and Prokofiev's melodies are short and crisp and and delightful and wry kind of kind of humorous you know and the and the works of uh, you know tchaikovsky's symphonies or his uh, ballets and things have these long sweeping romantic uh uh melodies you know they just go on and on and on passion and heartbeat and all that stuff hmm. you begin to see differences you know it's a lot of the same ways of, of learning or studying that that i encountered when i was in studying film in college Ah, you know, some I of bet. the similar, some of the, you know, you learn certain elements of the language and then you watch a film that is incredibly proficient at exhibiting one of those. Like, that, for example, exactly. you know, exactly. they might, they were teaching, they would show you about the classic one is when you're learning the various ways that a, that a shot is framed, you watch Citizen Kane, right? It's the mm -hmm. class because they were so inventive at the time. Sure. And then that takes you, you know, to some other film that did, was riffing on what? Orson Welles was doing in Citizen Kane, and that takes you to someone you know in front in the in France or in Italy, and then you're comparing Italian neorealism with the French New Wave, and so there's all you know the different that's movements. In right, film. that's exactly like what I'm talking about. That's exactly right. You, you, you. What you've done by by the way you just described and the way I was describing is you've entered into a kind of tradition. Mm, yeah, you're, you know, like we we yeah. think of 
a literary tradition or a, or something and you and you once you learn that something about that tradition then it becomes part of how you do your work in your day hmm. You yeah. might be reacting against certain aspects of tradition. You might be in, uh, embracing certain aspects of the tradition, uh, but you're commenting, in a sense, on what's gone before. And that's, I think, if you if you if you push this to its logical extreme, you get the 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 fifth commandment. Frankly, <laughs> you know, yeah. honor your mother and father, hmm. not just your biological mother and father, but those who went before you in your field those who went before you that made it possible for you to have what you have. Uh, this is how, this is how things will go well for you. <laughs> That's what the mm -hmm. promise is with that, with that yeah. commandment, right? Yeah. Um, honor your mother, father, so that things might go well with you. Well, how does things go well with you? They go well with you when you know who you are and where you are in that chain and what you're, what, what you can draw on the wisdom of the past, you know, the whole, um, medieval idea of standing on the shoulders of giants. Was that Bonaventure maybe or somebody like that? Hmm. Um, well, that's what we're doing, I think. And so you're entering into that, that tradition. That tradition is actually significant. Um, yeah. People do it now in popular music because now there's been 50, 60 years of history. Back in the 60s, there wasn't all that much. that They, they were making a break with the past and they, and they started their own traditions. And then, but then, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and people like that become the grandfathers of a new tradition. And now here we are 50 years later, whatever, and, and people are, are living on the benefits, partly, of the kind of harmonic and rhythmic uh, accomplishments of, uh, uh, you know, the Beatles or Elvis Presley or, you know, whoever. So it's the same idea. You just have to know your own history. Yeah. Okay. So. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I obviously have to ask you to to explain about why you don't like the word classical. It's, a, it's the wrong oh. term. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't like it. It's just I think it gets misapplied. If, if You hear people say, uh, do you like classical music? And what they mean is, do you like country music or do you like jazz music or do you like classical music or do you like hip hop music or do you like, you know, like that? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Categories. And the idea that you can make classical music an equivalent category to hip-hop music is absurd. <laughs> yeah. Not, and I'm not talking about critiquing hip-hop music yet. I might do that if you do. But <laughs> that would be a different conversation. That would be a different conversation. But that's not my point here. My point is this. Hip-hop music has maybe been around 30 years. Maybe, if you press it. Okay. Mm. Well, what we say when you say, or do you like classical music? You're talking about, when that word classical you're talking about things like um, 19th century romanticism, 18th century uh, enlightenment, uh, uh, classical music. That's truly classical music. Um, uh, 17th century uh, Baroque opera, uh, 16th century motets uh, and church masses, 15th and 14th century Ars Nova uh, I'm, I'm going to go into all that, but anyway, every, I mean, there's, there's, it's going from maybe the year, uh, shoot, 600 to the year 1955, <laughs> something like that. Okay. <laughs> that, and if you, if you want to use that one word to encompass all of that, then you really don't have any idea what you're talking about. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's not, there, there are more styles between 1800 and 2000 in class in what we call classical music in those 200 years then in i don't know uh, 10,000 years of popular music okay <laughs> you know it's interesting that we do that with music because it doesn't seem like we do that with other art forms to me do we do that with painting for example like do we say everything before you know i don't know uh 1930 is classical painting we don't do that we don't say that we don't say that everything even before like i'll just stretch it and say before the novel was classical literature but we do that with music i wonder why right. that is right right yeah i think it's because there is a there is a genuine change of um of uh, what am i trying to say is it a temperament thing like the way we think about the way we yeah, thought about it, music changed partly Partly, I think, see, 
I think that, that in the 19th century, 19th century romanticism inspired the idea of the individual, <clears throat> that the individual and his personal tastes are what decide what is beautiful. Hmm. And then in the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, you could argue that we gave up God, if you want to just be general about it. We, we you know, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's approach in 1870 or so was to say God is dead. By 1900, he's died himself, but, but his ideas become the sort of prototype for what's going to become postmodernism, I think, in the 20th century. But, um, but then there's a sort of vacuum there. So God is gone, but we still have this romantic idea that the individual's preferences are, uh, are sacrosanct, as I said at the very beginning. And, and so music br- breaks into two sort of um, uh, streams. Uh, the, the continuation of what we call classical music, continuation of the heritage of Brahms and Wagner and Bra- uh, uh, Mahler and Bruckner and into the 20th century, um, carries on in some various ways. But it becomes, over the course of the next 50 years, before the end of the Second World War, it becomes uh, increasingly um, esoteric. Uh, it's... it's uh, um, mm. Ivory Tower composers writing for other Ivory Tower composers. Mm. It doesn't actually speak to the individual uh, person anymore. When Beethoven wrote a symphony, the the public in general wanted to go and hear it. It's hard for us to understand that, but that was a big event. Uh, people wanted to go and hear the latest mm. work that Beethoven had written. But in the 20th century, you know, Karl Heinz Stockhausen, the 50, you know, nobody knows him. He's a 50s composer, 1950s composer. Um, a, a small handful of, of, uh, of musicians, and they were sort of electronic musicians. They weren't even, you know, orchestral people. They were electronic musicians were interested in his latest accomplishments. It's just left the realm of the popular altogether. And that left a big vacuum. And in that vacuum, we started seeing the influence of the blues and eventually uh, big band music. And uh, the blues becomes rock and roll in the 50s and so on. And you get this sort of rise of popular music jazz, in the 20th century. Jazz actually, yeah, jazz is in between the two of them. Jazz can be very popular and also at the same time be uh, very uh, uh, artistically uh, profound, I think. Yeah. Um, it seems like poetry is in a similar spot now where it's, it almost is like the people who really like the great poets are people who are poets. Right. Um, that's right. That's right. Emily Dickinson is, still has a little bit of popularity maybe, but T.S. Eliot understood that, that things were fragmenting, things were falling apart. Um, Yeats and so on at the beginning of the 20th century recognized that things were coming apart the center couldn't yeah. hold, is Yeats's famous line, right? Yeah, and yeah. Eliot's uh, Eliot's wasteland is a is a, a a fragmentation of the world of this of this heritage I'm talking about that people need to regain. Hmm. Uh, so he picked and chose from all the various books of all the various you know history of the world, Eastern and Western, and he sewed them together to make up a poem about how we're living in a in a wasteland. Um, and that's what they saw at the beginning of the 20th century. They're very prophetic. I think it's happened. I think we've seen it. So people's lives actually are no longer connected to the, the kinds of, of progressive musical thought. You know, what, what's the next step in the sort of evolution of music um, mm. on that kind of level? Nobody, nobody cares about that. Nobody listens to that. There was one, there was one um, uh, exception to that. Back in the 70s, a fellow, a Polish composer named uh, Henryk Goretzky uh, wrote uh, a symphony, a third symphony, his third symphony, and it became so popular that it was selling out in the rock and roll shops, the CD shops in the 90s uh, in England and in America, uh, especially in England. They would have these fantastic pictures of guys with, you know, red mohawks and, 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 uh, safety pins through their cheeks and things going in, going in and buying this symphony by this <laughs> Polish composer. Huh. But it's called symphony of sorrowful songs. And it really caught, caught, uh, the, the popular 
uh, mind again. That was a very strange and unusual thing. But that doesn't happen. Like I say, that's rare. Mm. Well, I should let you go. So I want to end with just a couple of kind of quicker questions here. Um, is there a piece of music that you have recently discovered or rediscovered that has caught your attention, maybe surprised you, or just you've been enamored with? I I do love the Prokofiev uh, ballet score to Romeo and Juliet. Hmm. Um, How do you spell spell Prokofiev? Prokofiev, Yeah, P R O K O F I E V. Okay, Prokofiev, and he wrote in the. 30s, probably early 30s, a brilliant, brilliant ballet score to tell the story of Romeo and Juliet. And it is priceless, just priceless. I've I've always loved it, but I have kind of rediscovered it lately. Hmm. Um, I conducted a performance of uh, Smetna's piece, The Moldau, a year or so ago. And I began to realize that that really is a fine little piece of music. And it's a good piece if people want to, as an entry-level piece. That is, uh, I was talking about music that has a program, you know. And this piece is about, uh, in a sense, sailing down the Moldau River from its its, uh, source all the way to the sea. And uh, the various segments of the music are kind of uh, interpretations of what it felt like to go down the river, you see. Here's the rapids, and here's the nightfall with the stars, and here's the, you know, the wedding on the bank. We went by a little pe- peasant wedding, and you hear peasant music in the back, and so on. Uh, um, are most of these pieces available on things like Spotify? If, oh yeah, for, oh, yeah. you know, sure. and you can find them on YouTube too. You can mm. see actually see an orchestra play them if you want. Oh uh, yeah, that's kind of fun. It's always nice to see the players actually making the music. I think. Not great for driving, but otherwise better. No, 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 no. Sit and watch it go by, but then when you go, if you go in your car, then take the uh, the audio and listen to that. Then you can listen to it again because all these repay and uh, repeated listeners. Hmm. Okay, my last question: uh, What are you reading right now that you that, that's taken you by surprise or that you're just particularly enamored with? I'll I'll put it that way again. Yeah, um, golly, let's see. Um, Frederick Bastiat's The Law. Have you read that? I have not. Yeah, Bastiat, B-A-S-T-I-A-T. Um, thin little book on the, on the law, the purpose of the law and how, it, how uh, well, I'll let you look at it and see what you think. But that's, that's about um, politics in a sense. It was, it's a 19th century book, but, it's a, but it speaks to everything that's going on in, in the political sphere today. Hmm. Really fascinating. All right. Well, before we let you go, I want you gotta you gotta plug the Center for Western Studies a little bit. What's oh, going on? What are you guys up to over there? Right, right, right. We are. Oh, we're having such a great time. The Center for Western Studies, for those who don't know, is a uh, a gap year program uh, for uh, kids who want to take a year off between high school and college to study two things: the Christian a Christian view of the world and the history of Western ideas through the humanities, through the arts, mainly, and philosophy. So we start reading in Homer at the beginning of the year, and we work our way all the way to uh, uh, T.S. Eliot and G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, basically anybody that has two first initials. (laughs) That's the parameters, requirements. Well, Hemingway, too, I guess we do. Hemingway and Conrad and people like that. But we usually get up to the beginnings of what we call the postmodern literary theory, which is maybe 1950s, 60s, that kind of thing. Uh, Poems, of postmodern poems. But um, in the in in interspersed with the the great books, you know, the, the Aeschylus and Dante and Shakespeare and so on, we also talk about painting. And we and visual art, architecture, and uh, and sculpture, and we talk about uh, music, and uh, uh, we have about six on the faculty uh, who have, carry the heavy load with uh, literature for the most part, and I do the art, and music, and and philosophy stuff, and together we give them what we think is a good foundation to go anywhere they want to go and to college without feeling like they have to give up their faith in order to study their seriously study in their academic fields. Um, so it's a gap year like that. What we're doing right now, where we are right now is 
uh, we're reading Erasmus. Mm. Um, we've just read in praise of folly, mm. lots of fun. And, uh, and now we're reading, um, uh, his, his debate with Luther over free will. Erasmus, you know, held one side and Luther held the other about whether the will is, is free to choose to follow God. And it's a fascinating debate and a great study in rhetoric, frankly, um, but also an interesting theological debate. And then next week, I think we've got um, Luther and Calvin. We're in the middle of the Northern Renaissance. That's why we're dealing with Erasmus and Luther and Calvin. Just finished up with Shakespeare. Hmm. Next, I think we'll go into the 18th century and uh, we'll talk about um, uh, Swift and uh, Voltaire and Rousseau and people like that. Hmm. Well, I know that I wish that this program had been around when I was graduating high school, I definitely would have. Would have I wish somebody had put me through it. I, I think it would have been great for me. I, I, that'd be, that'd be fine. And if people are interested in knowing more about it, um, Oh, I should tell, I should tell you this too, because this is always uh, something that attracts people in the spring every year. I take them to Europe. So we rent an apartment in London and we rent an apartment in Paris and we go over there and we spend time in the museums and the cathedrals and the, uh, concert halls and go to shows in the West End and and uh, like that. We go to Chartres Cathedral and we go to Oxford and see where uh, the Inklings met and you know various sort of things like that. So they get a little taste of of actually some of the places that we talk about during the year in person. I always get so jealous when I see the photos you guys post on on social media. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a great trip. It's a great trip. So if people are interested in that, we ought to say, you know, they can find us on our website at, at uh, centerws.com, hmm. centerws.com. And that's uh, Center for Western Studies. Well, Mr. Hodges, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you back at the conference this summer. So anybody who is going to be meeting us in Charleston, we'll see you there. And they, I'm sure oh, I'm sure you'll get pinned down by somebody that has some kind of question about this podcast. So, Oh, I'd love to talk to anybody about this more. And I can't wait to be there at the Searcy Conference this summer. I've always enjoyed that. And uh, I'm deeply uh, impressed by what you and your dad have done and uh, all of those that work with you. So keep up the good work. Well, likewise, thank you. And let me be a part as I can be. I'm always honored to be a part. We'll have to get you come back on to talk particularly about how to deal with pop music. That, I'm, <laughs> okay. sure, I'm sure there's a All lot right. of people who are interested in that. So maybe we can have a part two sometime in the next month or something. I'd love it. Anytime, David, anytime. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.